Hello and welcome to my podcast, Everyday Sublime, the podcast that sheds light on yin yoga and meditation. This is your host, Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here. As a yin yoga and meditation teacher and trainer, as well as a licensed acupuncturist, my intention is to offer an in-depth exploration of the intersections between yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. Okay, so this episode is the first installment of a three-part interview I did with Matthew Remsky. Matthew is a yoga teacher and author whose new book, Practice and All is Coming, this book explores abuse and cult dynamics in Ashtanga yoga. This topic definitely falls outside the strike zone of yin yoga, Chinese medicine, and meditation. And yet the themes of power abuse, toxic group dynamics, and victim blaming are all important themes for anybody who occupies the space of a yoga mat or a meditation cushion in the modern yoga landscape. So this is the first part of the interview, and I ask Matthew to lay out the pattern of abuse committed by Patabi Joyce, the guru of Ashtanga Yoga. And we look at how those abuses were interpreted within the Ashtanga community. For sure, this is really challenging material to talk about, and it's very likely challenging material to listen to. My interview with Matthew was originally published on Robert Wright's platform, which is meaningoflife.tv. And so if you're interested, you can listen to the full interview and actually watch the full interview and video there. That's meaningoflife.tv. But I think it's a good idea to wade into this material very slowly. Reading Matthew's book in some ways rattled me quite deeply, and I was just participating vicariously. But I came to see in reading his book how I myself had been deceived by several yoga and meditation groups that I've been part of. So in hosting this conversation, I want to titrate this series out and encourage you to receive and metabolize it slowly. But for so many reasons, and as members of the yoga community at large, it's really imperative that we come together and learn how to come to terms with abuse scandals so that these acts are really condemned to the past. Matthew is an incredibly important voice among many in leading the way for reform, and I'm indebted and inspired by his courageous leadership on the topic, as well as to the great bravery of all of the survivors. So practice self-care here while listening, and if you need to pause or take a break, please do that. But I thank you for your attention and for listening today. And now I bring you Matthew Remsky. Matthew, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Josh. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, let me introduce us. I am Josh Summers. I'm a yoga teacher and licensed acupuncturist, and this is Meaning of Life TV. You are Matthew Remsky, a yoga teacher as well, um, also an industry consultant in the yoga industry, and an author of several books. Most recently, you've written a book about problematic group dynamics in the yoga world, and it's called Practice All and All is Coming, Abuse, Cult Dynamics, and Healing and healing in Yoga um, and Beyond. Um, so I should say, you know, 
is, it's really nice to meet you. Um, this is kind of an odd uh, sort of endorsement to you, but uh, right at this point, I'd say you're the, you're the main reason I go onto Facebook. <laughs> oh, wow. That's mixed. I, I, I am, I'm happy to hear that. I'm sorry to hear that all at the same time. No, no. I mean, I, for me, it's positive because the, there isn't that much uh, worth following on Facebook. But um, I came across your work maybe two or three years ago. Um, someone shared something you had blogged about, about abuse and uh, some of these problematic dynamics in the yoga world. And, and I just kind of got, got into following what you had to say about it. And it really seemed like you had some trenchant analysis that was deeply missing in the, the broader conversation. So I want to dive into that, talk about what's going wrong, what's going on in yoga land, uh, what's problematic about it, and what might be uh, some ways that things can be remedied. Sure. Um, but as a way of introduction, uh, you or yourself are you're a survivor of two cults, um, and I know that part of this work in this book has been a, a bit of a healing journey for you, but how did you come to a focus on the Ashtanga yoga situation uh, particular and what was going on in that that you felt needed to be highlighted well i came to it reluctantly um the project that i had started with was a broader research project into injuries in yoga classes or in yoga practice and um the format was quite broad uh, I had started interviewing people from all communities and methods. Uh, and, you know, it had started with the strange realization that um, everybody that I knew who had professionalized into the yoga world or who was a really dedicated student was injured in some way. Uh, uh, you know, they were people were suffering from chronic pain or from repetitive stress injuries. Uh, and I found that very weird for um, a so-called therapeutic practice that people came to for spiritual benefit, but they also seem to be working themselves really hard in, and I, I started to wonder about that. Um, the book that started to emerge out of that research project was originally called uh, Shadow Pose, and the project name was What Are We Actually Doing in, in Asana? And I still have Shadow Pose as kind of like a book structure, mm -hmm. uh, but first chapter was going to be um, an examination of interview data of senior students of Mr. Iyengar, uh, and the second chapter would be uh, a series of, or an analysis of interview data uh, coming from the Ashtanga world. And at a certain point, I realized that the injury question in the Ashtanga world, which is profound, it's, it goes deep, um, was, I think... Uh, it it was still a surface question to the abuse issue that had been silent for many, many years, but also carried by a number of women survivors in a kind of whisper network as well. So uh, once I started getting more and more attuned to the fact that that was an underlying story, that, that uh, Mr. Joyce had actually assaulted women throughout his career, uh, and nobody had really published on it, I, I realized that, you know, I couldn't just put that into a chapter somehow, that right. there was going to be a lot of um, more work to do on that. And so uh, I also didn't, you know, when I started to um, get a sense of how grave the issue was, I 
um, really resisted going into it because I thought that, you know, my, my gut was that if it really was true that Patabi Joyce was a serial sex abuser, uh, and that he did it in broad daylight and that there were an untold number of women victims and that none of them had been able really to speak out publicly about it until Annika Lucas in 2010 and that, um, the community had not done anything about it, and it was probably widely known within the upper echelons of the Ashtanga world, uh, even into even as early as 2012. But of course, we now know it was far earlier than that. But in 2012, there was, you know, a big hagiography published of Joyce's life, mm-hmm. featuring interviews with 40 students, and everybody talked about how wonderful he was and what a you know grandfather and father figure he was and a spiritual teacher and all of that. Uh, and it, so I had this sense around 2015 or 16 that, you know, if, if what, what I was hearing was true and I believed that it was true, uh, that it would really rock the foundations of this particular community. And I was scared of that. Um, and I also thought that it would rock the foundations of the broader yoga world because Joyce is incredibly influential. Uh, without him, you know, there's no vinyasa. Without him, there's no um, sense of the contemporary group yoga class as being a, an intense, ecstatic, immersive, silent experience filled with breath and sweat. Mm. Without him, there's no adjustment protocol. Um, and not that it, he really gave a protocol. He, he assaulted people. But, but the whole notion that the, the teacher should always have their hands or should have their hands on a student at all times, that comes from his particular uh, pedagogy. And, and so I, I, I just was terrified of the implications of what I was hearing. And I, I resisted it for a long time, actually. Yeah. Um, some of our audience is definitely going to be familiar with the names and terms that you just mentioned, but there's, there's probably a, a, a yogic unliterate audience or that is listening too. So can you put Ashtanga on the map and then put Patavi Joyce is relationship to Ashtanga on the map in that? Yeah. So Patavi Joyce is the innovator of a system that he named as Ashtanga yoga, but it's unclear when that name came into usage because, um, uh, it seems that he was calling his classes that he gave to, um, you know, the, the businessmen of Mysore up until the end of the 60s, just yoga. Uh, he had been trained in the Mysore Yoga Shala uh, at, uh, at a very crucial point in the development of modern yoga history. Uh, he was born in 1915. He met um, the person who many consider to be the father of modern yoga, Tirumalai Krishnamacharya, uh, when he was about 12 years old, uh, and he actually describes being brutalized by Krishnamacharya, being beaten as he learned to do asanas. Of course, he's not describing that in terms of abuse, but rather as a badge of, of kind of honor. Um, and uh, he goes on to further his studies uh, later on in his life um, with Mr. Krishnamacharya and uh, assumed a teaching position at the Mysore Yoga Shala sometime in the late 30s. Um, but also under Krishnamacharya's tutelage was his uh, son-in-law, or sorry, his brother-in-law, BKS Iyengar. And um, so from this one gym, uh, which was set up by the Maharaja of Wadyor uh, in 1934, 
um, we have two of the pillars of the modern yoga evangelical movement. Um, Iyengar is responsible for the notion that uh, bodily postures that we assume in yoga, that we take on in yoga, should express some sort of geometrical form and balance and symmetry and a kind of like architecture of grace. Uh, but Joyce is the person who uh, puts postures into rigorous sequences and really gives the modern group class its fluid and intense feeling uh, going forward. Um, and, 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 the, and the Ashtanga Joyce form has spawned into numerous side forms, right? Right, right. So if you've been to a, if 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 you're if you're new to all of this jargon, uh, you've been to and you've been to a flow class. Um, you are um, you are benefiting from and, and perhaps being injured by uh, Joyce's legacy. Uh, if you've been to a vinyasa class, you are probably um, benefiting from uh, Joyce's legacy. If you've been in a class where rhythmic breathing has been timed with movement in some sort of coordinated way, that's all coming from Joyce. And also I'd say that, that it's Joyce's senior students um, coming out of his tutelage uh, from the late 60s, uh, but then especially into the 80s, that really give modern yoga its aesthetic in terms of its incredible athleticism, its, you know, beautiful but sometimes scary contortionism. Um, you know, when you look on Instagram today at hashtag yoga, um, you will see images that really had their birthplace uh, in terms of their sensuality, their their structure, their um, the, the whole aesthetic uh, really comes out of the Joyce movement. It's not Iyengar yoga photographs that get the most clicks on on Instagram. It's really the beauty and the artistry, and I would say the sensuality and the sublimated sexuality of, um, and sometimes not sublimated sexuality of. Uh, the that imagery that is directly coming from Joyce, and I think there's a there's something in there too around the connection between the yoga posture and um, and a kind of sexualized performance. I mean, objectification aside, uh, and all of the sort of image issues aside, I think the fact that um, many of Joyce's female students were learning in an environment in which he sexually objectified them. That's really that's really pertinent. So when we when we go to Instagram and we look at yoga images right now, we're looking at uh, at least part of a legacy of um, people being um, really having to perform under the male gaze in more ways than one. So talk about that the the, the sexual objectification. Right. With Joyce. And then and then and how did that lead to abuse, both physical and sexual under his, under him in his classes? And what, and what and describe what that dynamic looked like? I, I mean, objectification is just dehumanizing. Uh, and I think that and I think that um, what all of the 16 women who gave their testimony for my book uh, describe is that, uh, you know, they weren't people to him. Um, TM, who's the one um, testimony giver who wanted to remain anonymous, described feeling as though he, she was just a piece of ass who uh, who was there for him to hump her or to to give him pleasure um, in some way, and uh, and so the 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 assaults actually took place in plain view of everybody, uh, but under the auspices or or 
or under the sort of the, the, the story that he was adjusting people, that he was helping students attain postures that they couldn't otherwise attain, or even more kind of um, deceptively, and I would say creepy, that his touch was conveying some kind of spiritual knowledge. And, and this really goes back to um, uh, a very old and sacred idea in, uh, in, in a part of Indian wisdom culture called Tantrism, where um, the, the guru is said to embody a kind of biospiritual grace, and that by his, usually it's a his, touch uh, or their gaze or, you know, they can, they, can, they can strike you with a peacock feather, that there's a literal sort of uh, a transmission of spiritual realization into the student's body. And that's a felt, you know, phenomenological experience. And, um, and, and part of the story that started to accrue around what Joyce was doing as he was sexually assaulting women and possibly men too. That's not, that's not verified by first person testimony though. But part of the story that started building up around him was that this is what he was doing was that he, he, he wasn't, he wasn't digitally raping that woman. He was helping her find her mulabanda, which is a, um, a term for like an internal muscular, but also esoteric sensation that, that is that is tied to the rise of kundalini or esoteric energy so he was doing that or he was helping her heal from sexual trauma so so this this whole as karen rain says this whole sort of slew of cryptic justifications arose around his behavior and the weirdest part is is that he didn't even he wasn't the source of them it was the students who said these things about them, mm-hmm. uh, said these things about him. And, and I don't think, I actually regret not making that clear in the book. I don't say um, that he was the source of the explanations, but I also, I don't think I'm explicit enough in saying that it's pretty likely that he wasn't. I don't think that anybody asked him directly, what are you doing when you grope these women's breasts or when you put your hands on their buttocks or when you put your fingers into their vaginas? Like, what are you doing? He didn't, he wouldn't, if, when he was confronted about sexual assault, uh, the few times that, that, you know, I have evidence of, uh, he was very embarrassed. Uh, he would burst into tears at one point, uh, and apparently he would stop from time to time, but like somebody who had, uh, clearly an illness, he, he wasn't able to stop for very long. Um, so yeah, uh, the, the objectification, um, was a felt reality by the women who, uh, he assaulted and, um, yeah, it's and 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 I think we have to then wonder uh, what it means for his senior students and how they present asana or yoga practice to the world now. Like, what were the conditions under which they learned? Right. Because because if they were assaulted while they were learning, that's going to inform their bodily sense of you know who they are and 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 what this means and what they're what they're feeling and who they're doing it for. And if they were watching other people being assaulted, uh, what kind of secrets are their bodies holding? And, and, you know, as I said in the beginning, you know, these are some of the reasons why I really, I was scared to go into this material because, because it's, it's really deep. It, it suggests that at the heart of this, you know, venerable, lauded, beloved, 
you know, spiritual slash wellness practice, there's this really dark problem that, that hasn't been looked at and hasn't, and hasn't been addressed. Yeah. Major dark underbelly. Um, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm imagining the, uh, the, the listener that may not be familiar with the Mysore style of practice. So just to, to say that this is a style where unlike a typical lead class, like if someone were to go to a regular yoga studio or a gym and, and the teacher would sort of take them through a sequence, talking them through, maybe adjusting at times. But in the Mysore system, students show up quite early in the morning. Sometimes, I don't know what, sometimes early as 4, 4.30 a.m. Yeah. And um, they, they're not following a lead uh, series of instructions from the teacher. They're, they're following a, a series of postures that um, they've been given uh, right. in a successive stage, stage-like manner. Um, so you're, you're basically practicing independently, and then the teacher comes around and adjusts you or assist, quote unquote, assists you. Right. And that's that's it's that intimate contact uh, of the adjustment or assist where uh, this this is the the, the moment of of uh, abuse. Uh, that, that right. Could... In Joyce's circumstance, it was, and and it's and that becomes really complicated because one of the things that um, the the Ashtanga world has prided itself on for the last 30 years is the sense that the teacher is able to learn and know about the student intimately because they are having personal interactions with them multiple times per morning, every morning, six mornings per week, you know, two hours per session, uh, two days off per month. Uh, and, and so, I mean, I mean, that's where we get into the notion of whether or not, whether, or that's one of the ways in which we get into the notion of whether or not, uh, the, the method fosters communities that are actually high demand or cultic, right. Mm -hmm. Is, is how much time is actually occupied, but this feeling that people are getting individual attention and that when the teacher comes around and pays them that close attention, meanwhile, their colleagues are not supposed to be looking, they're supposed to be concentrating on their own stuff. They're supposed to be concentrating on their breath, or there's even eye positions that people are supposed to take. There's this sense that you and the teacher are alone, and and there are people who absolutely love, and they thrive on that. And and there's no reason they sh- they shouldn't, because it, it sounds like a it sounds like a really good thing. And I and I know that it works in practice uh, in many circumstances, but it also sets up a very very vulnerable situation in which people can be people can be uh, exploited in, in plain sight. And just to be really explicit about it, and you, do, you document this in your book, but what are these, what were the adjustments that were abusive? Like- yeah, well, he would, he would um, uh, grope women's genitals and breasts, and he would, uh, he would climb on top of them and actually uh, thrust his genitals against their own genitals. Uh, he would uh, come behind women and uh, digitally rape them by actually pressing his fingers into their into their tights, through their tights, into their genitals. Um, and you know, it's it's almost it's almost incredible to 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 say, but you know, story after story, testimony after testimony, uh, this is what this is what we come up with, and it doesn't make sense for. For 30 years of such activities to um, to to take place in plain sight without there being a network of complicity that's supporting and enabling them, and and that's why I started to use the the language of cult analysis to describe how it actually happened. Mm-hmm. 
And, and that network of complicity, and I want to explore that more, um, it, it does hit me on a personal level. I never really pursued Ashtanga yoga myself. I have lots of friends in the Ashtanga yoga world, right. uh, authorized teachers, um, and I've taken a few classes here or there. Um, but when I first got into yoga, just to, just to put a sort of a context on this, when I first got into yoga and started hanging around in studios that had an Ashtanga yoga program, um, I did hear these whispers around uh, certain kinds of adjustments and, and the, the euphemism that was given for this kind of very intimate genital touch was called a mula bandha check. And right. as you described, mula bandha is sort of this energetic, muscular lock uh, down in the perineum and the teacher is coming around feeling that to make sure it's in quote unquote engaged. And I'm, I'm appalled at myself in a way and you know, that, that I, I kind of joked along like, aha, like this is just a spiritual, the thing that we don't, I don't understand because I'm not far enough along to even, even perceive it myself or to see the value of it or see how uh, important it is when it's just bad shit. <laughs> right, right. But there's something plausible about it. Right. There's right. something. There's something plausible about it, and I and I I don't think I address this in the book either, except except where I get into um, the uh, the fact that especially uh, tantric and hatha yoga history is filled with uh, analysis and and thought and practice around the sublimation of sexual energies. And so, you know, I don't, you know, there, there's a, there's a way in which there's a way in which people show up in spaces like this and they are working so, uh, extrovertedly with their bodies in very vulnerable positions. And they're told that, you know, this practice is, it will have kind of like a total effect upon their bodies, minds, emotional, emotions, psyches. Uh, why shouldn't their sexuality somehow be included in that why shouldn't their the the intimacy of their you know their their deepest selves be somehow exposed and isn't that where so much strength lies i mean this these are all of the this is all the language that surrounds uh the sexuality of yoga that that um can i believe begin to soften a person up into not really going, wait a minute, what's more obvious here is that this guy is sexually assaulting women and that he's doing it for his own gratification and that, and that, um, you know, there's no therapeutic benefit to this. And, and, you know, you could meditate your way into believing that there was perhaps, but most people are not actually having that experience and, and we shouldn't be telling them that they should. So, so, you know, I, I, I appreciate I appreciate the your 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 confession but I also want to say that you know the the notion that the notion that people should be liberated somehow in the way in which they conceive of their sexuality within yoga is part of yoga's appeal actually <laughs> and so and so it's not I don't think it's a big leap for people to go oh well uh, maybe I shouldn't be so uptight about about such and such or maybe I shouldn't uh, ask too many questions or that's private after all but also we're working on our private stuff and so I think it's very very confusing and and um, 
you know, and, and the, the women, uh, again, I'll, I'll refer to TM in the book who says that, um, you know, as soon as she was sexually assaulted, uh, uh, somebody who saw it happen came up to her and said, okay, so you realize that what just happened to you, uh, that wasn't sexual, right? And she was very, she was confused. She was like, what do you mean it wasn't sexual? And, and they had some explanation about Shakti pot or like spiritual transmission. And, you know, she didn't give the impression in the interview that she totally bought off on the idea then, but she bought off on enough, she bought off on it enough to be confused and to be disarmed and to, and to sort of be put in this position where she should, she felt that she, that her own critical thinking or her resistance to the idea was somehow problematic. So, um, and that it was going to stand in the way of her spiritual development and, or something like that. So, so yeah, um, uh, it's not, it's not a surprise that these things get uh, wrapped up to together and, uh, and, and sold on and end up, uh, rationalizing abuse to me. Yeah. Now, in following you, I know that you have your eyes on many different yogic and Buddhist meditative spiritual communities that have lots of these bad dynamics at play. Um, What was it about the Ashtanga situation itself that that made you want to put it in the forefront of your case study in the book? Um, I I think I think it's really. a kind of awful serendipity really, because it was reportable. Um, the evidence was clear. Uh, the, the network of sources that I began to develop, uh, began to send me this cascade of information. Um, and just let me interject for a sec, uh, in terms of evidence being clear, because this sometimes comes up when I have conversations with people about it, they refer to the allegations, and, yeah, yeah. You know, and 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 the thing that pe- listeners need to know is that there's ample video and and right. photographic evidence documenting all of this. There's also 16 women who said he assaulted me, and this is how he did it. Right. So, so it's not. I mean, one is enough. Uh, and but but you know, there's no question anymore that there are that that we're in allegation territory, and and that's a that's a really I think um, crucial moment actually because. One of the things that, uh, that, that comes up in each one of these yoga or Buddhist community, uh, you know, spiritual, physical, emotional, sexual abuse cases is that the behavior of the, of the, the actual actions of the leader, of the perpetrator, are always interpretable. There's always something mysterious or like... Um, uh, or a little bit beyond or childlike or innocent or super spiritual that about the leader, about Mr. Joyce or about Manus or about um, Bikram Chowdhury, although less so, more, more people would, would see him clearly for who he is. Um, but there's always something mysterious about the, the leader or the, the guru which is probably not a, a good word for these people, uh, that, that allows their behaviors to be endlessly bandied about as though, well, we can't really know what he was doing. And, you know, his, his, the relationship between the teacher and the student is sacred. And, you know, we don't know what's going on. We can't really interpret, uh, you bring up the video evidence. People argued about that for years. 
they're watching sexual assault taking place like before their own eyes and they're saying, oh, we don't know what's happening. We don't know what's going on. So it's been it's been a combination of forms of evidence that um, I think have moved it out of allegation territory, but more importantly, out of the territory of interpretation where the um, the, the leader who is who has perpetrated crimes is somehow beyond the realm of the normal citizen who can be evaluated in the same you know according to the same standards of evidence as, as anybody else um, and there's something about that interpretability that is like essential to his magic usually his magic that that you never know quite what he's doing right you never know um, you never know, uh, uh, whether it's actually for your benefit or not. And, you know, even if he's abusing you, maybe he's helping you get over ego. There were people who would say that, because the other thing that Joyce would do is that he would just steal money from students. Um, he would cut short their stays or he would, he would say that they owed him more money than they actually did, or he would make up exchange rates between the U S dollar and the rupee in his favor. Uh, and, and Pete, when that came up, that was well known as well. And when that came up, people would say, oh, he's helping people with their money issues. You know, they're 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 attached to money. So people are capable of all kinds of of BS when it comes to the interpretability of of the magical person. Okay, we'll pause the interview there. But by now, you have a sense of the gravity and proportion of this terrible issue. I won't be releasing the other installments until after my summer break, so the next episodes with Matthew will go live on my site sometime in September. And in the meanwhile, I highly recommend picking up a copy of Matthew's book, Practice and All is Coming. Matthew's publisher was kind enough to extend a 15% discount to members of my audience, and that discount code, which is summers 15 that's my name summers 15 that that code is in the show notes along with a direct link to where you can purchase matthew's book i can't emphasize enough the importance for every person in the modern yoga landscape to become familiar with the dynamics that matthew describes here in the book so stay tuned for future installments and please let me know what you think of the book when you get it thanks so much for listening today and i'll see you in the next episode